Welcome to Always See Everything, the movie podcast where we review, rank, and riff on every single film in the Criterion Collection. I'm Anthony, and this is my co-host, Sean. Hey, hey, Sean! Let's do this podcast the Aki way! Sure, sure. Sean proceeds to take the podcast, mash it into a giant uh, bag of crushed-up sour Skittles, and then he fries it in oil and flips it three and a half times. He sprinkles it with ground beef and cheddar cheese. He me- then melts that into uh, a big patty, and then he sprinkles a bunch of crushed up sour cream and onion chips on it, and then he does some whipped cream, and then he he serves it with a buzz ball. I am so hungry. <laughs> that, I, I don't know if that was supposed to be disgusting, but I'm into it. No, that's the thing <laughs> about the Aki way, is that like, on paper, it's funny, and the phenomenon is, like, kind of stupid and obnoxious, but I could eat. I could eat the Aki way. That with a buzz ball, too? Uh, a buzz ball? That's what buzz ball was meant to be. Buzz ball <laughs> pairs with exclusively Aki way food. That's, That's what it was made for ahead of time. On today's episode, we're talking about them fact stacks. We're talking about some of that, getting that some of that gold, bro. We're getting uh-huh. that money, money, money. We're talking Cash about rules everything around me. Exactly, you gotta hustle, get on that grind. So we're talking today about uh, one movie that's called The Magic Flute, which is like about like Mozart or something. Who cares, right? But yeah. the, uh, the the rest of these movies about them coins, baby. Uh-huh. We got uh, we got. Les Million, a 1931 Rene Claire film. We've got uh, Shallow Grave, uh, Danny Boyle's 1994 film, Pair It With Pulp Fiction, and You Got Yourself a Stew Going. Then uh, we go over to Sean's pick this week. We got Thief, Michael Mann's Thief, because uh, what we really need more of on the internet are is uh, straight guys talking about Thief and <laughs> Michael yeah. Mann. Is that something that – is that like a new film bro stereotype? I mean, Michael I guess Mann. Michael yeah. Mann. Okay, I, I guess, I guess I would say like talking about thief specifically, yeah, right? Is is less sense, the, it, actually like Miami Vice is more of the thing, or like uh, is it? Uh, it's Heat. Heat's it, the heat, big one. Yeah, sure. I think Heat's more like in between Film Bro and Uncle. Mm, it's exactly. That beautiful little little piece of the venn diagram which we all love so so much right in the middle (laughs) i like to keep a nice distance between us film bros and uncles (laughs) i don't know i think that it's time i think that it's time to to settle the beef i think it's time to come to grips with the uncle i'm a film bro so what so what you're saying is there's heat between me and my uncle. That's what you're saying right now. That's exactly what I'm saying. There's sexual tension between you and your uncle. Sean, what did you think of today's, uh, this week? Because there are two musicals in this uh, batch of films. And then there's uh, some movies that we picked out that are just kind of fun. This was a shockingly really great week. I didn't mm. dislike any of these. Sure. And the musicals I appreciated in ways that I did not anticipate. Uh, Magic Flute, crazy. I...
yeah, it is interesting. It's fucked up, is what it is, <laughs> coming from me. Because these mm-hmm. are movies that you would pick out. Well, okay. Magic Flute, actually, I think is has more Sean synergy than perhaps you anticipated. But Le Million had a little bit more going for it than uh, it was. It's the little the little French film that could. The little know? million that could. Mm-hmm. That's what people call me. I thought people call you the magic flute. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> the that magic flute. Doesn't fl- make any damn sense. <laughs> That's pretty good. Let's read the description from Criterion. Uh, this scintillating screen version of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Who's Wolfgang? that? Wolfgang. <laughs> Wolfgang. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's <laughs> beloved opera showcases Ingmar Bergman's deep knowledge of music and gift for expressing it cinematically, casting some, some of Europe's finest soloists. Josef Koslinger, Ulrich Kold, Hakan Hagegard, and Birgit Nordin among them. I don't know why I said that like more with my kind of Mexican flair, but whatever. Yeah, the director, you're a little Latino. The director lovingly recreated the Baroque theater of Sweden's Drottningholm Palace to stage the story of the Prince Tamino and his zestful sidekick Papageno, who are sent on a mission to save a beautiful princess from the clutches of evil. A celebration of love and forgiveness that exhibits a profound appreciation for the artifice and spectacle of the theater. The Magic Flute is among the most exquisite opera films ever made so that's that's kind of the headline here opera you know (laughs) it's an opera yeah well what i want to talk about first is the way that bergman kind of makes this his own because obviously a lot of it is just kind of a a film adaptation of he kind of reconstructs it as if it were a stage play and then puts a new spin on it through the way it's filmed But I think his main contribution outside of that is the weird segment in the beginning with Mm. with that that uses the overture as an opportunity to have like an audience, a coexist poster transformed into (laughs) an audience. (laughs) Like it's 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 interesting. What did you make of that? Because well, I, I have an idea I, of it, but I think it's pretty basic. I think, first of all, it deserves a little bit of mocking for exactly what you're saying. It does yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. they went to like a like uh, a movie studio and were like, we need extras and they need to be like from all different walks of life. And it's like I started to think like, OK, are they going to have like a nun in here? And then like mm-hmm. a, a guy with a construction hat who's like, oh, hey, it's this Mozart guy, you know, like it was starting like to YMCA, get a little crazy. YMCA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The village people, like one representative from every. Nope, YMCA. That's what I meant. Yeah, <laughs> like, the YMCA. My favorite band. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, but, but that being said, I think it's effective in that, uh, to be able to continue to check in with them and sort of have them uh, to continue to remind us that this is like a play it's meant to be seen i think it's brilliant uh it reminds me a lot of uh henry v i think we co- mm. it was henry v that we covered yeah. um but henry v loses sight of its audience very quickly and this slowly uh stops being a stage play in a traditional way they start getting the sets get more and more elaborate and uh, larger. And I think it, it's very, very subtle. And I think it rules for that, but it continues to remind you like, Hey, people are watching this and there's an audience for it in a way that, uh, 
it reminds me of when your teacher is like in class, like saying, okay, we're all, everyone to read Shakespeare, but you know, Shakespeare was really meant to be performed. So we're like going to read it out loud or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, it's, yeah, I guess. And it's true. It does, it, you know, Shakespeare rules more if you have people giving like performances or whatever. Uh, but it, th- in the same way, it's like they, they didn't want to just adapt the magic flute into like a, a typical movie. It really should be performed in this way. And I, I love that. Uh, but Bergman is such a close up guy. And mm-hmm. that I think is my main issue with this movie, but it's also what I really could, could grasp onto when thinking about this guy as an auteur. Uh, we talked about, we've already talked about Autumn Sonata and the Seven Seal, two movies, especially Autumn Sonata, but also the Seven Seal that are really preoccupied with what I'm now calling this, the Bergman close up, which is we cut off their forehead a little bit and cut off their chin. So we could get like as close as possible without losing like the, the full expression. Um, right. They Before do that. Becomes- um, comical yes exactly they do that a lot in this movie and it's it, it's it can be very effective but it's also really taking away from the fact that this is a set we're constantly watching a play being put on and i want to see the beautiful elaborate sets i want to see the thousand people like in a uh in a room uh with like the the helmets that are on fire and everything i want to see the animals that are walking around that have huge giant you know masks and are clearly just guys in like fur suits and everything i want to see all that and uh you know focusing on faces especially for a movie that is pretty darn long uh i think it is probably appropriate to opera something i know very little about uh but it does not work for me because the thing that I'm most interested in is sort of the stage play stuff. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know if Bergman suits this material in that way. I think that that's a compelling argument. Um, I think what makes me change my tune a little bit there is that tune on your magic flute. Seems, yeah, a little bit. Uh, but the, the thing that kind of, makes me a little bit more partial to it is that I think that I don't know if Bergman was in in charge of casting all of these actors, but I imagine that he had quite a bit of influence over the fact that these aren't like these are actors, but they're stage actors. And I believe all of them sang all of their lines, right? Mm -hmm. Because what I understand is that they were selected, you know, from the the crop of opera singers. And I feel like that's kind of obvious, Mm -hmm. not like, not not in a bad way, but like the the main the the leading lady, the the princess. She's mm-hmm. I mean, she's obviously like very beautiful, but you probably would have picked someone who's a little bit younger for that role. But perhaps, yeah, I mean, maybe I, she's I, not I, she's not supposed to be like she's not uh, to, to, like she's not virginal. It's not trying to be like oh she's like this young like you know innocent or whatever. She's not innocent she just is a lover and i don't know you can have lovers of all ages you know well sure but i do, do you think that what i'm saying is that like papa gino's actor mm. is not necessarily like he feel all of them feel like stage actors yeah. just in the way that they're that obviously they conduct themselves obviously the way that they can fucking belt it out like crazy mm. they and Bergman, I think, does a very good job of allowing us to capture their strength as performers, but in a different way, where you're right that we lose out on a lot of the cool things, which are, you know, the incredibly complex, beautiful, uh, pastel, bright painterly sets. Mm -hmm. But I I think that we do get enough of that. 
Um, and in a way, by not necessarily focusing on it and by shunting it into the background psychologically, then it kind of, it, it creates this effect to make it not necessarily more convincing, but to make it feel a little bit less in your face, you know, like look at this crazy, ridiculous over the top thing that we're doing. It almost right. becomes just a fact going on in the background because the important thing becomes the actors and the way that they, that they fill the stage. And it seems like Bergman's mission here is to kind of try and accomplish a sense emotionally of, of watching a performance and being enraptured by that performance and by the actors, right. but you know, through through, through the his camera, camera by focusing yes. very closely on them which i and think that's why really there's the cuts to, to the, the, the audience or especially that little girl you know it's like I, I believe after the overture the little girl is the only one who is cut to right if i am i i, I agree with you i think uh but i i just mean she's still a stand-in for us like we're yeah but yeah the cuts to her are intentionally it's putting you in the the headspace of we're watching from her perspective and so when there's a close-up it's because she's really in exactly what you're saying and i think these performances i I think the reason that he selected like a a little girl and the way that he the way that he cut to her like Mm -hmm. that man you know the video that you watch in the first or second class of every film class where it explains the kuleshov effect yeah bergman rewatched <laughs> that and then was like holy fuck this is real as shit i'm gonna it's... i'm gonna put this in but she's very flat <laughs> she does well, she has like two reactions really here's, and here's we're the thing projecting though. a lot on her here's what i like about that is and you know maybe i'm reading a little bit into it but my interpretation of that how we either see her kind of mildly smiling in this mm-hmm. not in a very innocent way, in a way that just seems like a genuine muscle reflex, you sure. know? Like, oh, I see something pleasurable, and so I smile, because stimulus response. I'm a child who sees things in very simple ways, or just kind of observing something blandly. I think that we're kind of meant to... You know, people say that children are kind of the toughest audience, in a sense, because they will give you their honest reaction. Is mm-hmm. They won't be polite they won't put on any affectations if they're bored they will seem bored if they if they like it then they'll smile which also makes it so gratifying right. to perform for them so i think in a sense that bergman is kind of pitching himself and pitching his his work here to an imagined audience of a child and kind of suggesting in a sense like jean cocteau in, in beauty and the i Beast, was gonna say the same thing yes that that you're that you enjoy it in that way, so I, I think that's that's a very interesting choice, mm. and it's it gives an a cool spin on the material here. Where in addition to the kind of more focus on the close-ups, like that that aspect of this movie or those two aspects, cutting mm. to the audience, cutting to the little girl, I should say, the audience right. in the beginning, two and a half and the close-ups where other directors would have pulled back those are really the big bergman affectations i think but those kind of make the character of the film outside of course of you know the the actors who i mean i just want to give a blank out shout out i think they're all fantastic i think they all ulrich cold well 
Ulrich Cold. Give him a big shout out. You know, he plays Sarastro. I'm I'm not going to give him a Trent coin. He doesn't elevate the entire movie or anything. But props to him just for being one of those guys who has a face, you know? (laughs) He does really have a face. I think the only thing about him is that he's got, like, like theater director face. Like, in the sense that, like, this man could never be a threat to anyone. Oh, oh, I disagree. that's not necessarily a compliment. No, I was... No, he reminds... He looks like Orson Welles. (laughs) Like, he's terrified. And you're like... He doesn't have an edge to him. Like, really angry at me. Is this guy going to give me my standard rich and famous contract? Or is he going to get really depressed and lock me in, like a building for a long time until he dies and says rosebud like <laughs> which orson welles am i getting little cheeks yeah he's got he chubby little cheeks and big bulging frog eyes yeah. i don't know and he his name's ulrich cold <laughs> i just think that that's awesome best. that is the best if i used a dnd now that i know that, that his name D&D is ulrich cold people would think that's over the top people would immediately begin kicking your ass this is I also would drive over to your house to kick your ass <laughs> This is also a this story is very D and D ish, and I know that we're we we talk about that a lot. I, I think that I need to you know maybe cool it a little bit, but I basically talk about movies and play D and D. That's my life. So D and D, it feels very much like these characters are like oh they've got a quest and like there's these these deified people who are sending them on this quest and then they have to go through these trials and all this stuff. It's like a whatever. Uh, I I I don't I'm not in love with it you know i'm not like loving the story i gener i'm i'm not a opera person obviously uh this is the closest thing i've had to an opera in a long time uh that i've experienced to an opera in a long time and i don't really i don't see a lot of like thematics here that i'm really interested in there's not a lot here that uh i think is complex or even worth really thinking too hard about outside of just the filmmaking and the presentation uh i don't know it's 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 a fun ish time it's very long and the scenes they have some scenes in here that are like real scenes man and and i i applaud it for that but also it could get a little long in the tooth especially when you're talking about something that's so raw and basic like we get it he's uh he's a dude he he loves this girl and he wants to be with this girl and the trial is hard you could really summarize that in a sentence instead of having like a long uh whole scene where he's going like the trial it's difficult and i love her so much you know it it can get a little much well your singing reminded me of something that i want to shout out Massive contrast here to the Max subtitles, which, as we've established, are dog shit. And when they're not incorrect, they are just parentheses unintelligible. Right. Uh, oh, I but hate, the criterion, I hate inaudible. The and I'm like, I can hear channel it. subtitles. In contrast, mm-hmm. not only do they transcribe it. I, I mean, I don't know if it's accurately. What the fuck? I don't speak this language. Whatever <laughs> it is. But sure. they go to the trouble of making the subtitles rhyme. And they make them feel like they go with the song. It's perfect. It's wonderful. It, it enhances the experience so much. And it's like, man, I, I write shit. That's what I do for a living. That's what Mm. I like to do. And just people going the extra mile to aesthetically enhance the experience with, with my chosen medium. Uh, I mean, as small as it is, and as much as some people will turn off the subtitles, it really, when you go the extra mile to 
to try and preserve or even enhance that experience for someone who doesn't speak that language like that it at the very least it, it made this film for me and i'm the most important man in the world so that's fine thanks <laughs> so God. right right yeah uh but i actually have a very different view from you and i think that this is we've oh. talked to about it a little bit but uh-huh. we've kind it's it's a difference i think in aesthetic sensibility where i am a fan of the broad operatic raw basic emotional expression like i like a very very simple story expressed in a bombastic sincere fashion uh with a lot of technical proficiency from from all involved like the way that it's constructed the way that it's performed i I think Mm. that that's a big i mean we're obviously we're amateurs analyzing this art form here but i think i'm not i don't know what you're talking about i i'm know everything fuck that's true (laughs) you forgot that i know everything i possess every bit of knowledge about everything okay well (laughs) i only possessed most knowledge got it i possess all you're the most important man in the world i'm just your sidekick who knows everything (laughs) right you know all things i am all powerful like it's it's kind of a thing where you know it's it's a whole thing we won't get it and then and then stan is our holy spirit (laughs) yeah wow we we don't really know what he does Uh, we really don't know what he does we're still trying to figure it out he does something (laughs) he does listen he does something to me <laughs> That's really good. I uh but what I mean though is like opera it seems like a lot of the a lot of the appeal of the genre and the medium is kind of encapsulating this raw basic emotion mm. in in a fashion that's so proficient just mm-hmm. in terms of of technical ability of singing and expressing these emotions that it kind of transcends the basic and turns into, because on some level you could argue that no matter how complex or thematically rich something is, mm-hmm. the it, it ultimately goes back around to inspiring the same very basic emotions in us. Sure. Like something can be incredibly intelligent and, and beautiful and in a way that makes you afraid. It can analyze and allow and force you to, try and comprehend the nature of death in a way that invokes a feeling of fear or, or like, there can right. be a really well formulated jump scare right. that does the same thing. And you could say that one is smarter or more intelligent than the other, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with that distinction in a lot of ways. And I'm All not right. necessarily All trying to be anti art here. I'm saying right. that these things are, we, we shouldn't necessarily view them as more or less valuable than the other, but I always try and view view art by its own standards or try to. And I'm not saying that you or other people don't, but to me, I, I think that this is a, a very lovely and honestly compelling story mm. um, about very basic things. Like the, I would, I would say that Tomino is not the most interesting character. I will say that I really like the segment he had where, he just became immediately so wrought with the idea that Sarastro wasn't this horrible tyrant. Yeah, that's and pretty it, fun. It's so simple and like kind of childish in a sense, but mm-hmm. like the fact that immediately upon his his views of the world being contradicted, he just he's just wailing and tearing at his chest. He's just like there's there's something 
there's something really great about that i think that that kind of sincerity and like having that character with the incredibly these incredibly basic qualities of purity and nobility like an archetype and then challenging and undercutting that archetype in a way that is blunt right um i think that that's it 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 works it works because everything in tandem the singing the performance um the music the set dressing yeah of course and mozart the just in case you didn't know mozart (laughs) it is mozart uh they should have called it the mozart flute Woking like that that scene with Tomino and also honestly everything with Papagino I actually found really endearing. Sure. Um I, I thought that there was a really lovely idea. Um I, I feel like it kind of runs counter to the sort of moralistic fable that you would assume this to be where right. no, you know, he, he fucks up at every turn. All of the trials, he mm. immediately fails. But like he's he's like kind of a good guy. He's like nice. Mm-hmm. And we don't really want him to be set. No, he is nice. That's it's the thing fun. about here. He's here's the thing about Papagino that I like is you'll people watch him and be like, oh, he's an incel, and like, yeah, by the technical yeah. definition, sure. Yeah. But like, that's I'm not that's, even say that. He's just he's like he like goes along with things because he's he's like afraid the whole time, and every, everyone has to convince him to get into like dealing yeah. with things like well, over and normal. over again. He's a normal guy, and <laughs> he, you know normal. he's lonely, and he's he's got some things that he wants out of life, but he sure. doesn't hold he doesn't blame anybody else for it. He's not trying to make it anybody else's problem. Right, he's just right. going about his day, and you know. If he kills himself, he'll do it in the woods without telling anybody, <laughs> and he'll give the world a chance to to do something for him. But if he doesn't, hey, you know, he's like, it's not. He never <laughs> blames the ladies for it. He's just oh like, well, gosh. what's wrong with me? What's wrong with Papa Gino? And oh I think that gosh. we could all learn from that because uh, at the end of the day, we're all Papa Ginos. Because we're want... our Papa Ginos. <laughs> it's so funny that her name is Papa Gina. It's, it's like really the funny. best joke. When he goes, uh, Papa Gina. And I'm like, yep, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Suddenly this movie is perfect. Uh, I, 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 I want to just fight a little bit. Like, I don't think, I think that I, of the two of us, I'm the one who tends to be like, I love like genuine stories that are not uh, super cynical. And I, le- I love uh, a, a mo- movie that can, my, but my version of that is like the princess bride, you know, mm-hmm. what you brought up that moment where he's like, no, what he must be. He's Sirostro. He's the bad guy. He must be like the, an oval, an, a terrible leader who like needs to be like toppled or whatever. It reminds me a lot of in the princess bride, which we'll talk about one day on this podcast. Uh, when you, you got Fred Savage there sitting there being like, uh, I, uh, when he's like wait who's gonna kill humperdinck at the end of the story it's a it's a fairy tale he's gotta die at the end and they're like uh no one he's gonna live a long life you know he'll live a long and happy life for the you know for the rest of his life you know that's not this kind of story or whatever and he's like that's so not fair and he's like yeah it's 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 life you know i i think that there's in the same way it's like not everyone uh there's that part in harry potter that i love to quote a lot where sirius black where uh uh harry is like well umbridge she must be a death eater she's just the worst person in the world and sirius is black is like dude the world isn't divided into bad people or uh, you know good people and death eaters it's it may seem like that because like your your least favorite person draco malfoy his dad is also a death eater but like 
most of the time it's not like that and i i like yeah, that distinction that is but, that is good but like Sirius was kind of capping there because pretty much every other <laughs> villain in the entire series turns out to be a death eater yeah it is maybe harry potter isn't the best <laughs> thing to make that point with i agree i actually yeah very much uh rolling you know in that gotta, moment, sure. got got some stuff to work on. Um, <laughs> add that to the list of things you're gonna you're gonna edit retroactively in mm-hmm. in your in your uh, Twitter posts. Um, I generally I just uh, this is just I guess didn't work for me. I just think that it's a little too loud, a little too long, and uh, not it didn't it didn't compel me. I guess I, I didn't ever feel like I was being drawn into it, and so because of that, I just tried to analyze it, and I came up with nothing. That's mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. Um, I'm sure that there are people who are yelling at us, being like, "It's it, magic flute. It's this great like post-war, you know, like breakdown of, of Swedish society that we're just not getting." But you know, whatever. It's cool. I could buy it. Whatever. Uh, if you think that that's true, you know what? No one even has to think that it's true. I think that that's true. <laughs> and we got to talk about. Uh, we talked briefly about like the, the musical aspect of this thing, which is it's Mozart. It rules. Uh, but we talked about like the subtitles and everything because this is mm. one of the musicals along with the lore that we've covered uh, that is in a foreign language. So let's move on to Le Million right. and let's talk about musicals after sean would if you would kindly kindly read the criterion summary an impoverished artist discovers he has purchased a winning lottery ticket the very moment his creditors come to collect the problem is the ticket is in the pocket of his coat which he left at his girlfriend's apartment who gave the coat to a man hiding from the police who sells the coat to an opera singer who uses it during a performance by turns charming and inventive, Ren Clare's lyrical masterpiece had a profound impact not only on the Marx Brothers, Brothers, Marx Brothers, the Marx, the Marx Brothers, and Charlie Chaplin, but on the American musical as a whole. So I wonder by that line what American musical specifically um, reference it, but I don't know. But so oh, that's well, interesting to think about. I mean the the the. I 100% uh, immediately thought about uh, uh, your Gene Kelly musicals. You got your Singing in the Rains. You've got your uh, An American in Paris. Those movies that are uh, on the town. Movies that very much feel indebted to this movie. I can't think of a specific reference, like like a specific like moment that felt one-to-one. But I definitely felt that I was like, oh, wow, this feels very American. And I realize now it's because, of course, I've seen a bunch of American musicals and this that a lot of them are indebted to this French one. So I'm not really familiar with that genre, but do you think a lot of that has to do with just the kind of average urban atmosphere, in a sense? Like, occupying, yeah. like occupying this these like apartment buildings and city streets with mm-hmm. with the singing and dancing like using the frame in that way i i think that that's kind of in a an interesting part of the aesthetic of this movie is right when i think about the first part of it so much of it is using these spaces of like yeah an apartment building or yeah and really the show- like the first four <laughs> musical numbers are in the, are same the apartment, apartment yeah building, but- and- 
and the and the set and also the using show business sort of as a setting is in the latter part of this movie uh it's very very american musical where they're like i don't know what if we made a musical about like people putting on a play or a musical about like people making a movie or you know or making another musical and you're like okay well you know you got your white christmases you got your uh kiss me kate's like all these movies that are very much like that you know yeah, but the the foreign language aspect is one of the big challenging parts of it as as American and English speaking critics that we're talking about here, right? Right. I think so for this this one, I based on how well they did it for us in the magic flute, I'm going to choose to trust the criterion subtitles here. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the songs. We got it. It's 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 yeah, part of our it. viewing experience. It's part of it's it's the version of the film that we watched, and in that and it's sense, one provided by Criterion. It's not even like we like pirated that. I mean, no. we we watch the Criterion Channel. It's you know it's real. Keep it's it real. real. <laughs> the Criterion Channel. The subtitle is it's real. It's real. <laughs> what the fuck does the... that mean? <laughs> You're like, was that wait, as opposed to all those fake streaming services like Quibi. <laughs> Tubi is a fucking fake streaming services. They make Did movies from say, alternate universes. I didn't even say Tubi, I said Quibi. I know you said Quibi. I'm talking about fucking Tubi. <laughs> Tubi too. They're both they're both like that. Uh, the BIs. That's how you know that they're fake. That's how you know that's how they get you. Tubi is where I watched a movie called Dogface, a trap house horror story, and it was awesome. Crackle is probably the fakest one. Like Crackle's ha- pretty. The ads on Crackle are fucking crazy. You, fake. I have not watched anything on Crackle in many, many years because I have not found a reason. Like I have never been like, okay, oh, I got to search up this really obscure movie. Oh, oh, it's on Crackle. Okay, great. All like, of the like, or uh, when I was looking for them, a lot of the Godzilla movies, like Godzilla versus Destroya, are on Crackle exclusively. Mm. But like. You also have to go on there and you're seeing ads for like fucking female condoms and shit. <laughs> Just like the most insane ads that you've never seen anywhere else. Sounds great. We're definitely gonna we got we gotta go on Crackle. We'll do a Crackle ad review when we go through all the Godzilla movies. That's the next podcast that we do. Is <laughs> right. after we're done with this, we do every movie on Crackle. Or every we're ad always on seeing crackle. everything. Every ad. Not the movies. No, Screw no, the movies. No, no, no. Fuck the movies. So, uh, it, it, going back to going back to Le Million, um, when we're watching, when we're watching something in not our native language, well, I mean, mm. we always have the caveat of like this might be you know mistranslations or whatever. But right. the lyrics of a lot of the songs, I initially was kind of bothered by it because this was when you had texted me, "Hey, I think Le Million sucks." Uh, Mm -hmm. And we both kind of changed our tune, I think, in the latter half. But in the beginning, when I was kind of expecting it to suck, a lot of the songs have this element of just the characters announcing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I am the baker and I'm collecting my debt. I'm going up the stairs (laughs) to fuck up this guy. Like, the first (laughs) few songs are... And a lot of the songs are like that, cannot keep going. That sounds fire. Damn. He doesn't have the money that I want. I'm gonna go back downstairs. 
I'm recording yeah. a podcast right now with Sean Weir's singing as a bit. It's gotten a little too meta. <laughs> he doesn't know I'm not wearing pants and I'm cranking <laughs> off on my little Peter. That's you singing. Your magic flute. That's you singing that. Yep. <laughs> so, but I, I eventually came to kind of see that as a bug, as a feature rather than a bug. And I think a big part of that was just the running bits of like how many people act as units in mm. this, like the, his, his creditors who are always, you know, yeah. Acting together, trying to get their money from him. Or mm. I love the like underground revolutionary group who act in like perfect synchronicity. And they're like, we are the hammer of the proletariat. We're going to steal from the rich and give to the poor. And then, like, two scenes later, the police have an exact mirror of that song. Right, right. It's so very we funny. We are the hammer of the law. We're going to protect, you know, private property. Like, that That fucking rocked. And it, it made me really appreciate the choreography in this mm-hmm. thing. It's simplistic. But the way that it's done is it's a very good balance of understanding the environment and like the the way that they're framed all the like every scene has this as a very good idea of how to frame its extras and how to frame the ways that they move because at the beginning and at the end they kind of frame story where it's everybody in the in the apartment you know, right. together at once and you have kind of the overhead shots and then at the end one of my favorite moments in the entire film when they're all streaming out um you know linked together arm in arm and then they're streaming on crackle yeah they're streaming on crackle and then at the end it just leaves the guy and his girlfriend in a way that mirrors the way that we were introduced them in the beginning and i love the scooby-doo chase sequence where the camera is static and they're all going in all the different hallways and like there's there's so many little clever ways that bodies are directed in this um but as a it's sort of like a miniature version of we what we've talked about with kurosawa how crowds and these groups of extras become like this organic body which are in perfect synchronicity it's Mm -hmm. it's a version of that with you know less actors and then maybe a less impressive way but in a way that still feels very musical in a sense like a kind of a backdrop or a backbeat you know to to the scene or creating a structure to it um so in that sense i would say that the million kind of impressed and intrigued me i I don't think that it's incredibly funny i don't know if it's incredibly like creative story-wise but at the very least i want to give a shout out to well i I, we should talk i'll let you speak a little bit on the first half of the movie because i know that that it took a little bit yeah, to get going. The first half of the movie, it, it, like, my biggest note is just, this is kind of boring. <laughs> like, it's kind of just a lot of, you know, musical hogwash. A lot of pageantry, a lot of beautiful looking uh, moments uh, that, that can work for a little bit. But mostly it's just, you know, it's silliness. And it doesn't feel like it's, I, I'm not even trying to say like, oh, it's not deep or anything. I just mean it's. It's not even that entertaining. I didn't find it engaging very much. Uh, I There's a couple good moments in there, like when they have the guns all pointed at him and the guns all dance. That's really funny. Uh, but mostly, I don't... 
it feels like the, someone who is just discovering how to make a musical. And I know that that's kind of what is going on here. Like this is an early Hollywood, you know, an early version of what eventually would become a Hollywood musical. I mean, Sean, we're not really addressing. It's like a, it's a night. This is a 1931 movie, which means yes. it is two years out from, uh, you know, the jazz singer and everything. And it's not that, uh it's it, it, talkies are are barely started up let alone singies right and mm-hmm. uh this feels like it is very much a a beginning for that and setting a template and because of that where i i feel like i'm watching a template and that's fine but the second half is really where it takes off and goes into like more humorous more uh more, more humor, more uh, silliness, and a, in a way that works. Yes, it gets more inventive. That's totally true. Uh, they they're able to find ways to put these characters in situations where they're not simply just running around in circles, which gets kind of boring after a while. Like sure. uh, even you read the description, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he goes from the coat to like his girlfriend's apartment to the thing, and I'm like, yeah, that already like exhausts me. When they finally know, okay, that's the coat. I got to get the coat. There it is. We know exactly where it is. Now the problem is getting to it. That's when this thing takes off. They've got some set pieces going. Uh, the entire thing where it's like the, you know, she's talking to the guy and this person's hidden in the room. Like, that's really good. The entire sequence of the two of them on stage while the the the, the code is in the middle of them is really funny. The sequence where there he uh, turns around his girl and like kind of like wins her back while a musical number is going. I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, a, that, I mean, that is just one of the many good sequences in the second half mm. of this movie. I texted Sean really like halfway like through being like, this kind of, it is, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm giving it credit because I sure, texted yeah. you halfway through being like, this sucks or whatever, then turned it off. Like the next day, picked it up again and was like, oh, well, all right, good. <laughs> but like, what was I thinking? But I still do remember those souring, you know, first act or so first act, you know two acts or so uh that were just you know whatever i even like them in the police station which i think is more of the middle section of the movie yeah. so uh, it picks up picks up well what i want to say about that sequence um with him winning back his his lady while they're kind of acting in synchronicity with the lyrics of the song and mm-hmm. on like kind of unwittingly but also kind of on purpose there's a fun like playing with it like okay uh, like uh, they kind of know what's happening in the song and are but are kind of playing along with it it's it's cute but that is what i really like about the last third of this is that there are very familiar arcs Hmm. that you know the characters are going to go through that can initially seem like they're going to be kind of tiresome this is a guy who doesn't appreciate his girlfriend. By the end, he's going to appreciate his girlfriend. Like that's right. the type of movie we're watching. But the way that that happens is in this cute, fun, inventive little sequence structured mm-hmm. around these cool set pieces yes. in the with this really cool backdrop. And then a little bit later, he does the same thing with his friend, where they kind of reconcile slash have their argument. Like mm-hmm. that's done in the same way, and it's it, it really it's the same central conceit of playing along in in synchronicity with the music but that is it's kind it's of better impressive. than them just stating their emotions and absolutely and it's also <laughs> like this is a very 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 early musical and not only inventing many of the kind of 
a lot of the basic language of the medium, but mm. also to play that up a little bit and to explore it and say, how can we use our specific, you know, utility as a musical in order to, you know, bypass the things that would happen in a more conventional film? Like that's, it's a cute idea. And right. this is like, yeah, it's, it's raw. It's not incredibly interesting for a lot of it. Like, yeah, the characters aren't super compelling. It's not an incredibly compelling story. And like I said, it's not, while amusing in a lot of cases, I would say it's not gut-bustingly laugh-out-loud funny. So I don't want to oversell this and say it's like, you know, I love this or it's incredible. But I Mm -hmm. think for what it is, I am, I'm quite impressed. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I agree. I think that it it gets better. It's, I, I, I. Yeah, I basically agree. I just I, I I weighs on me a little bit more just because I'm like, yeah, it's it's fun. I I just I I basically think like, well, if I'm never gonna pop this on again, I'm just gonna watch yeah. a musical that's better. I'm gonna throw on Singing in the Rain. I'm gonna or you know forget like the fact that it's like in foreign language. It's like I will still watch stuff with better gags. I'll watch the Charlie Chaplin or Marx Brothers stuff that it inspired. Uh, but you know maybe not go back to this one which kind of gets a little weird i also was very surprised that he it ended up working out he gets he makes his stacks bro he gets he his does. million uh i that was i mean i didn't expect something so uh like i didn't expect such a happy ending uh in a week filled with sort of you know um let's say mixed bag endings well let's talk about another film with an extremely happy ending uh, and, a, and a mixed bag. Yeah. Your money. pick for this week. A mixed bag of money and newspaper clippings. And sanity. <laughs> Insanity. Uh, and, mm-hmm. We're going to talk Shallow Grave. Uh, 1994's, one of 1994's best films. Uh, don't at me. Uh, Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave. The diabolical thriller Shallow Grave was the first film from director Danny Boyle, producer Andrew McDonald, and screenwriter John Hodge, the smashing team behind Train Smashing, Straight Train Spotting. In it, three self-involved Edinburgh roommates, played by Carrie Fox, Christopher Eccleston, and Ewan McGregor, I don't know who that guy, in his first starring role, take in a brooding border, and when he dies of an overdose leaving a suitcase full of money, the trio embark on a series of very bad decisions, with extraordinarily grim consequences for all. Macabre? Macabre? We've, we've gone over this? We've gone over <clears throat> this. Macabre, but with a streak of offbeat humor, this stylistically influential tale of guilt and derangement is a full-throttle bit of Hitchcockian nastiness. Uh... I love Shallow Grave. Uh, last time I saw it, I basically was like, wow, I can't believe no one talks about this. But, you know, it's it's pretty good. I basically have, like, but we'll talk about Thief as well. But both movies I just saw this week and rewatched and was just like, oh, yeah, this is what I want from uh, cinema as a whole. This is everything I want out of this kind of movie. This is everything I want from watching anything uh, in general. It's so funny. It's so engaging. It's so uh well it's so well executed aesthetically it's beautiful to look at but also it's screwed up um it has a very strong viewpoint it has this thematic richness that can be uh, dug into um its criterion cover sucks but otherwise it is uh <laughs> i mean this has gone from one a movie that i was like oh yeah that's pretty cool i'm really excited to rewatch it to 
maybe broaching my 50 or 100 great favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I'm so into this, Sean. I want to say at the very, very least, uh-huh. I think that the first like 30 seconds of this movie are maybe my favorite of like any movie legitimately like <laughs> wow it's, it's, holy cow it's, no like i that shot of my, the, the ground as it moving as it moves and that don't you know don't bounce you know that Brit-pop it's a great beat. fucking song it's a great first shot it's a mm-hmm. great couple of lines like i forget what he says at first but then he goes like this could be any city They're right right the same. it doesn't just, matter yeah and if if there were like one if there was one or two more lines after that it would be semi-hard but it was just like jaw droppingly, insanely hard to yeah. begin like that. Like with that level of momentum, that I mean, that confidence from a director to have two very striking, like declarative, powerful statements. Like mm-hmm. I, I aesthetically I and thematically, you know, for for saying like, look at this, look at the streets and everything. Look how much energy we're gonna inject into this. That's like aesthetically and then thematically being like, and it's all the same. The world is right. a horrible place. I, I know that <laughs> and I know that we, um, spoilers. Daniel didn't write it, but right, right. I, it's it, one it, it's it, his it, guy though. It's it's uh it's John Hodge, you know, they 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 work together on train spotting and uh I if I'm not mistaken he also does Life Less Ordinary and the B each uh, right. with him as well but both of them had this in like this insane fucking s- take your dick out alpha confidence <laughs> to start your movie with right. yeah simple short declarative hyper close-up shot followed by impressive sped up sweeping shot over these city streets like fuck it absolutely incredible and you know i'm i'm not as high in this as you, I would mm-hmm. say. Sure. Like, I like this. It's a very good film. Right, um, right. And I'm very, very excited to fill in the blanks and watch Train Spotting. Which we but will do for this podcast because it just got added to the collection. It's going to be so but exciting when it, that comes out. So It's glow in the dark. The case is glow in the dark. That's how twisted it is. Sorry, I'm so excited. Fucked up movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Someone like someone damn spermed all over it. One one of the characters is named Sick Boy because it's sick. Yeah, (laughs) you're gonna be Sick Boy, dude. We have to talk so much about like which character you are in both of these movies because that's just so. Are you an Alex? Is that is that what we're? Are we on? Someone thinks they're an Alex and they're a David. I think I, I'm honestly. I no, think no, I'm no, no, no. Oh, don't pull the Rick and Morty crap. I don't think that. No, I think that David's kind of. I'm a David. I'm so a David because I'm like, I don't want to be involved, kind of, but I also kind of do. Then and that could make. Crazy. And that could drive me crazy or whatever. Um, I think, I think I'm, I think I'm Juliet because I try and play every side against the middle mm. and I try and use everything to my advantage because I think I'm the mastermind holding all the cards. Yeah. But in the end, I just don't have the fucking follow through. Right. I just don't have the nuts to do anything for myself and I end up with nothing. 
Yep. Yeah, I mean, we basically reviewed the characters there. Alex is, uh, like, this crazy guy. Uh, that's movie rules. But, like, Alex is, like, this guy who's, like, he presents as, I'm the crazy one. I'm so awesome. It's so cool how crazy I am. But also, he, like, sits and watches game shows with, like, a beer in his hand. Uh, or And Pringles or whatever. Which I think is, you know, you watch it through Alex's eyes and you think that he's, like, at or removed to a certain extent. He's, like oh, I'm doing this ironically, but he's also just doing it. He's, he is just watching a game show with like a beer in his hand. He is just, you know, perpetuating sort of a, a stereotype about a consumer, you know? Yeah, and the, you get kind of this impression where he's portrayed in a way where he's like, oh, you know, he's a horn dog, he's a ladies man. But mm-hmm. you never see him like have sex with anybody. You no. never see any of these people have any kind of, relationship with anyone outside of their in-group because they've isolated themselves well so i mean closely together except with, like, uh, juliet has the relationship with her group of you know constantly avoiding it uh and i think that you obviously see that david is like uh unhappy with his job but if you're talking but i think and i think juliet especially it's like it's important to her character that she's the one who we get to see like constantly trying not to be found you know trying to be sort of alone in that whereas everyone else is kind of like passively you know locked away if that makes any sense well i I think whether it's intentional or unintentional there's always this idea um with all of them that they're Mm -hmm. that they're too good for everyone else and that they've created this sort of strange arbitrary set of standards that only they could ever fulfill and there's a lot left unspoken here i think with like how they got to this point and a lot of that in my mind has to do with this idea of like young people living in the city like the the yuppie stereotype which Mm -hmm. isn't really a phrase anymore because everybody like I mean, the, the whole funny thing yeah. with the yuppie thing in general is that people who got mad about yuppies either got jobs and became yuppies themselves or just burned out and became, like, misanthropic shitheads who sure. nobody or died, just fell you know. through the cracks of the world or died. Like, <laughs> the people who were bitching about yuppies were, like, our parents, and sure. then they became our parents. Like, sure. there's... And uh, so... And everyone... I, I, honestly, this... I mean, look, they these people seem like they come from some kind of privilege to be honest Uh, to a certain extent it does feel like whatever they got whatever there's nothing actually like said again like you said there's a lot left unsaid but it feels very much like at least alex had rich parents at some point um and I, i feel like they all come from some kind of privilege that being said to a certain extent i think that in in our modern like get that stacks get those money uh get those money kind of world they're actually living the dream right like they go to their jobs then they come home and they like you know spend a bunch of money and go crazy and sit on the couch and do nothing all day like they're and and they're like just they hang out with their friends there's just three good friends that like you know us versus the world no you know no holds bars screw the capitalist system but also profit from it you know yeah well i don't even know if they have that kind of level of analysis and intent there sure because they just seem to be it it feels very kind of 90s in the sense that you have these people who kind of believe they're better than everybody else because 
they've thought about how they're better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they just don't really have any imagination beyond gross consumerism. Sure. Um, There's, it's a crisis in a sense of like, of the spirit, because they just don't, they're just kind of fundamentally empty in a sense, you know, where there's just this, this idea always that, oh, you know, we're, we're better than other people because we say we're better than other people. We're better than Cameron because he's a fucking, he doesn't meet whatever arbitrary standards. And, you know, they, they end up deciding for themselves, you know, whatever. But I, I guess my, not my problem, but something Mm -hmm. that I felt like I, I would have wished that they explored a little bit more was, well, actually, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why I don't love this, but I feel like on sure. some level it's kind of a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I do like how much is left unsaid and unspoken about these characters. I think sure. what I'm more so a little bit concerned about is at a certain point you kind of get the the whole idea here, which is, okay, we're going to do something a little bit unexpected where, oh, you know, you kind of initially expect that these guys who we keep cutting to that are hounding them, like they're going to be the villains. They're going to be the big puppets. Uh-huh. And I like that that is completely undercut. Right. Uh, and that again, shows a lot of like confidence. And but David becomes level... this, but it also like creates the second conflict, which is David is crazy. <laughs> David yeah, well, will that's, that's go thing, nuts. He's I think broken. it loses a little bit of momentum at that point. I like it on paper. I love sure. it on paper. But and I like it in sure. practice it's a 93 minute movie though it's like there loses momentum okay there's 15 minutes left or tw- maybe 20 there's like 20 minutes left i don't and know it's like halfway through sure that, that it kind of makes that tonal shift and like uh, uh, i don't know I, I don't know i think that you're a little wrong like what happens after that they've already spent their money there he's already he's he drills holes in the ceiling the cops show up and then it's the big conflict at the end. They, they stab each well, other. Well, there's with three knives. separate scenes with the cops. There's at least two to three separate scenes with Alex and Juliet figuring out what to do with David. There's mm. a few scenes of Alex doing his thing, his reporting. There's a few scenes with sure. Juliet, you know, going through her. All right. Yeah, all right. There's quite you're a right. bit going you're okay. on. You're right. It might be closer to the halfway point than I, than I think. But yes. All right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I my my point is more so just that once it kind of has that twist, I think at that point you start trying to pull the car into the driveway. Mm-hmm. But they they let it linger a little bit, you know? Uh-huh. And again, I like it, but I could see I could see where I love it, you know, a version right. of this where I love it. And I think that it would ask to try and be a little bit less clever. Like it, it mm-hmm. feels like a a brave statement by up and coming artists who are kind of in a sense trying to be clever, but know? also pulling the. But, but this is the thing is that that's exactly my my reading. I, I was a little bit closer to you the first time around, where I was like, I mean, he's, he, whatever. It's the first, especially because I was watching it in the context of I've seen all of Danny Boyle's films, and I be inter- I don't think you've seen any of them, right? Um, if you no. haven't seen Train Spotting, right? You haven't seen Steve Jobs or Sunshine or Twenty Eight Days Later, any of those. Um, he. he he he's definitely a filmmaker that I can't like, I'm like, yeah, that's a Sean filmmaker. How is he? How is that not a Sean guy or whatever? Um, 
and and it is an unconventional opinion from me to be like, oh yeah, this is like the top three in the top three of his filmography. So you know, don't don't if you're not so if you're not into this mm-hmm. as much, don't take that as like whatever, right? And you were clearly right. into it at least a little. But um, yeah, I sure. think that. But what what I think that I came around to this time around was he. Yes, it is being clever. It is also saying being clever is stupid. <laughs> like yeah, it is saying like you think that you're clever, you're actually just like everybody else and you're gonna and you're just selfish and that's it and in a world where everyone is just selfish then the person who's actually the most clever is just the person who is the most uh is the most crazy the most willing to go to extreme lengths to keep their their half of the bargain to keep their money right and Juliet thinks that she's that person because she's putting people against each other, but she doesn't have, uh, like you said, she doesn't have uh, the, the bolts to be able to uh, actually do the follow through to uh, t- put her life on the line there. She doesn't kill Alex. Like, that's no, the I, way- I love that. She just, yeah. her, she doesn't even, she doesn't even really try to deal what would be a fatal blow. She just pushes mm. the knife in. She just, tries and piggybacks off the work that david's already done yes and try and hope that that's good enough and it's not and right alex it, just gets every and even if even if she did finish the job like she wouldn't have gotten the money you know it was kind mm-hmm. of like alex who has is the most affected and is the most kind affected in the sense that he has these affectations and these right. pretensions of, of coolness and everything in the end he kind of lives up to it or at, mm-hmm. at least more than everybody else where like right. yeah you knew how to play the game because in a world where being clever just means being selfish like you said then the most clever is the most selfish exactly whereas david is like paranoid <laughs> david is david loses even though he's the one who's like i need to think about like everything this from every single angle and right, try to get whatever but he kind of loses because he has to a certain there's that scene where he like puts the drill in alex's head or whatever and right. he loses because he kind of softens for a second he can't quite like that's interesting you know like what is the dynamic there where it's like he he's not as clever he's not as selfish as he seems even though he got broken by this thing of like he's the guy who chopped them up and now he's just okay with that you know or he not okay with that but he thinks he is you know he he's he's come to a point of like uh now he, he he can when he disposes of the the guys who are coming to collect he is the one who chops up without even a discussion he chops them all up and throws them in a grave or whatever like he's or he's busted the rubber band has snapped or whatever and i think that there is something very true there where it's like you think that when the rubber band is snapped that you're like well i can just keep on snapping it it doesn't really matter right um but also uh he softens he loses that's why he loses you know well, I think that the conversation that he has with his boss at the accounting firm is a really good cipher here mm. because his boss talks about a couple things about accounting and the, the profession and accountants in general that ultimately become reflective of David. One mm. is that you get the job done. no ma- And that's right. both bad, he's mentioning it in a positive context, but it's also negative in the sense that David ultimately because he's sort of vacuous and he doesn't have this sort of internal drive or this this sense of identity 
um, that exists in itself that, that comes from within, he becomes what they need him to become. And then ultimately he becomes a monster that grows out of their control. But in the end, he can't win because right. he's their creation. And sure. he can never he can never be the one to benefit from it. And what his boss also says is that people look down on us. And, you know, you kind of need he kind of implies that, oh, you need to look to other people for validation. Mm -hmm. And David is defined by his need to be validated by Juliet and Alex and mm. how easily manipulated he is by them. Yes. Not necessarily because they're so smart like they think they are, but because he's just so vacuous. Mm. And I think that that's a really interesting part of what becomes the conflict is that they manipulate him into becoming what they need him to be and then what they need him to be is a psychopath and then lo and behold he becomes they a they make a psychopath like great job now you I, need to figure a way out of it now you gotta deal with the psychopath yep i i 100 agree uh i think that yeah let's wrap up our shallow grave discussion because i think we, we have a lot to say about thief but i, I overall this is becoming this, along with Chunking Express, is, like, one of my favorite movies in the collection. I don't... It's hard for me to, like, put it alongside some of these other ones, and we'll get into the rankings and stuff. Because I I also just want to say, this is a beautifully shot movie. It's really well coordinated. The, the color grading is beautiful. You could do essays on just uh, the... Uh, the, the use of color in the film or the or the way that um so many of these sequences are shot especially everything with david as he slowly you know descends into madness the entire thing is narrated by uh david's corpse in the mm -hmm. morgue and it's that's also interesting because you then he dies before the movie's over <laughs> you know like he's dead before the narrative has concluded so you know he's narrating from like this very sunset boulevard kind of place where it's like uh he's he's um he's different he, he's uh he, he's he's omniscient in death and everything i think that there's a lot to be said for it uh and uh it's crazy that people don't like I don't see this talked about in like a film broy type way, and I wish it was because it's it's like a fun movie. It's very silly. It's very fun. It's you know got great actors in it and everything. Christopher Eccleston, uh, not my favorite Doctor Who uh, actor, but you know he's 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 got his charms and everything, and he's like well known. He played a Marvel villain. How do people not like break him down? I haven't watched a lot of Doctor Who, but like he was easily the least grading of the Doctors that I've seen. Really? I mean, besides like that Peter Capaldi guy and and the lady. Oh yeah, you're a cynic. <laughs> I mean, they're not like grading. Again, I don't like Doctor Who. <laughs> sure, sure. Of the ones that like hated David Tennant, hated Matt Smith. Like that's not. You mean and the, that's... Good, the best ones? Yeah. Okay, got it. You, I mean, that's the, the thing ones. is that those are the ones that everybody <laughs> likes, right? So I... that's why I'm not suited for Doctor Who. I I totally understand why you don't like uh, Matt Smith because you know he's Mister Quirk, Mister Quirkerton. Like he's like, oh, and I wear a fez and I wear a bow tie sometimes, and Isn't or that I wear David Tennant. No, Tennant is long brown coat. Uh, he's uh, wears three D glasses once, and that became like a thing for him. Yeah. Uh, oh, they're he's... both like quirky guys. No, Ten is like, t Ten. I because you know he's the tenth Doctor, but Tenant is less quirky. He's got more of an edge to him, more of a like I'm haunted kind of feeling to him. And 
they, they've both got quirks, but Matt Smith is the one who really took the like and fish fingers and custard. And uh, we're going to point out how wacky it is that like through time travel, I'm like having a, you know, meal with my mother-in-law, but she's six, you know, like this, like the, the Tumblrification of Doctor Who, I think really takes off with Matt Smith. I think that David Tennant has, is the best doctor because he had an attitude about it. He, uh, he's introduced as having this like really long monologue that ends up being from the Lion King. And you're like, oh man. But then uh, you're like, oh man, that's a little too like silly and quirky or whatever. And then immediately like there's this, this alien, uh, this alien guy turns on him and he savagely disposes of him. And you're like, oh wait, there's like, he fucks uh, alien. Yeah, and then he disposes of he like though but like he just like he he kills him and there's this like feeling of oh this guy he's got his fun and he likes enjoying himself as doing the doctor who type thing but he also uh uh, uh hates himself a little bit you know he he has a cynical edge he doesn't care he's like if i if i think that you, if i desi- decide that you deserve to die i'm going to kill you without remorse because it's uh, and I'm gonna take a little fun in that too. So uh, anyway, like that's me. that's why I like David Tennant. Yeah, so but a little bit like me, a little bit like you. Uh, and then Christopher Eccleston is kind. He just has he has one season, and I think that there, it, you know, the, the the stories that come out later are very much saying like he didn't necessarily love his time there. And I think that you can see it a little on screen. He's trying to, I think he is the, he's the template for what the 10th doctor becomes where it's like haunted a little bit, but also he wears a leather jacket. He's kind of cool. And I don't know. He doesn't, he doesn't work for me. He's, he's I mean, I think he's fine. I just, you know, he's not the best or whatever. My, I think my every whole, doctor should only have one season. That's a, my, that's interesting. That's an interesting take. Uh, same with James Bond. Uh, no, but I just mean that Chris Frackleston is a well-known actor in sort of mainstream nerdy spaces. I don't, so uh, between him and Ewan McGregor, it's weird that more eyes don't go to shallow grave and also, you know, Danny Boyle, obviously, uh, it's weird that more eyes don't get on it. And, uh, yeah, we should, we should, we, we can move on as soon as you're ready, but yeah, I, I basically think, uh, it's really cool. It's also maybe the best Hitchcock movie we've covered so far. I know I said that was charade, but it's also true here. It's like, this is a Hitchcock thriller. It's like about suspense and like getting rid of a body and stuff in, and, uh, dial M for murder or the trouble with Harry type way. I, I don't understand why, uh, we're only getting bad Hitchcock movies up till now. Yeah. Well, speaking of bad Hitchcock movies, it's a terrible Hitchcock movie. It wasn't even made by him. Oh, uh, dang. This is the criterion description for it. You just No transition. Just g- no give transition. us a little whistle. Give us, give us a little about? flute. That was a good transition. Give me 16 of the flute noises in a row. <laughs> Let's just wait for a second. Let to go. Mm-hmm, still going. And Ooh, that's a lot. This last one's taking a while. 14, 15, and there it is oh yeah there that we was, go there that we was go. great Perfect. oh there were a couple of false starts but we got there the <laughs> i'm contemporary so sorry tyler american auteur i'm not fuck you the contemporary american auteur michael mann's bold artistic sensibility was already fully formed when he burst out of the gate with thief his debut feature James Kahn stars in one of his most riveting performances as a no-nonsense ex-con safecracker planning to leave the criminal world behind after one final diamond heist. 
but he discovers that escape is not as simple as he'd hoped. Mm. Finding hypnotic beauty in neon and rain-slick streets, sparks and steel, Thief effortly established the moody stylishness and tactile approach to action that would also define such later iconic entertainments from man as Miami Vice, Manhunter, and Heat. I effortly? did not realize. <laughs> huh? Effortly. He said effortly instead of effortlessly. I assume it was uh, instead of effortlessly, and it made it sound like it was a lot of work. It was a lot of you work. Can clearly Thief, does, <laughs> Thief is really grinding. It's toiling away to establish Getting them the moody dollars. and tactile approach. I did not realize that both of these were debut features. Yeah. Oh, I did not think about it, but it's true. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, what better debut feature than like, hey, what if there was money and these people wanted it, you know? <laughs> Tell as old as time. Right. And I think both of them kind of have that sense of confidence about their style and what would become trappings of, I mean, Boyle, I obviously know less about, not that I'm an expert in, in Michael nope. Mann, but you know, I've, I've seen he. I've seen You're totally he, right. Uh, that's yeah. enough. But th- there is this, there's sure. this incredible confidence to Thief, I think, that uh-huh. immediately bleeds through. And I want to uh, start by comparing it to an old favorite of mine and one of the, the established, probably the most canonical film that we've covered so far in terms of our kin. It's, it's it Ghost Dog. Our name. It's yeah. Ghost Dog. Because Always this is... Everything, my dude. It is... It has that same sense. I mean... It, um, Frank is a very different character from Ghost Dog, but, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously there are the surface level comparisons of driving around in the city at night and the way that that expresses a lot of characters, like driving around in the city at night slowly with a cool soundtrack playing is, you know, it's, it's happened in Drive, of course. That's the one that every right. 4chan guy compares himself to as, like, the, the cool guy. But there's the this... Dry, there's, there's a, so, so uh, this is actually really... I wanted to bring this up. The, there's this string of movies in the collection that we are touching upon that I think is really important. Lace Samurai is kind of the beginning of that. And Lace Samurai has a huge influence because, obviously, like, people remake it and it's an influence on blah, blah, you know. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, The Killer. We talked about... About, uh, we're talking about Thief now, right? But also, after Lace and Ghost Dog is obviously just kind of a remake of it. But also, there's this offshoot that Patrick H. Willems has brought up before, where it's like, after that, they do uh, Thief and Driver are the archetypes. It's like, okay, the, uh, the uh, Driver, or is it called The Driver? It's The Driver. Walter Hill's The Driver, right? And he, it's the uh, same thing. It's I actually had to double check because he kind of is styled like James Caan a little bit as well. So I was, uh, I was looking into that to see if that was the same guy it's not but it's this it's the guy who drives around at night and is like i don't want to get my hands too dirty i'm 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 a criminal but you know i'm sympathetic a little bit and like maybe the cops get after me maybe the criminals that i'm working with also come after me and there's like that like tension and then drive does it again and then baby driver does it again it's the same thing it's like what if i was a dude who's like a little sympathetic but i'm also in the criminal world i'm a little cool but not too cool and uh everyone comes after me and i'm running from them that is a full-on like it's it's lay samurai that it is a reoccurring theme throughout all of cinema across uh uh most i mean we're talking mostly american cinema but across countries across uh you know 
styles and uh different uses of um the, the camera and different filmmakers i think that it's interesting to see that that is like a lightning rod for so many filmmakers that they all just kind of make the same story about like the one disconnected criminal who's like i'm gonna get out of here yeah and the way that that's expressed aesthetically especially mm. in thief but i, I think it it's fulfilled in a lot of these like ghost dog mm-hmm. and, and drive is what I'm primarily thinking about here mm-hmm. is like seeing the world from this kind of hunter's eye where I you know we talked a lot about in ghost dog about this kind of incredible competence and mastery of your environment. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I think that the, the city streets, like neon lit city streets at night with like a tangerine dream style score here or with mm. a score that brings attention to itself, right? Could Ghost Dog use that trick as well where the music was was kind of focused on and gave this, it was in the foreground and had this sense of of like, I talked a little bit in, in Le Million about how there's this musicality to the physical action on the screen, like, weaving in between the city streets where it's this kind of slow deliberate pace and it's i think that the safe cracking scene in thief is sort of handled in this same way where it's this these mechanical separate movements that we're being focused on in the same way that they kind of handle the twists and turns of a city street we have the methodical process kind of stacking one brick on top of the other and it's that that sequence, those sequences of Frank's sort of capability of him showing his expertise in his field is that they feel like what I think is really interesting is that there they aren't action sequences and there isn't really tension because mm-hmm. in the diamond heist scene, there's there's obviously things at stake, but the cops aren't coming. They aren't cutting to, you know, the police being like, what's that? A disturbance on 31st in Maine? No one is, you know, nothing is going to happen to him. It's just about him focusing intently on getting this job done because there is no danger. It's just about him doing what he knows how to do. And there's this level of security in that scene that you don't get in the rest of that movie. Because Frank is such an, a nervous, weird, insecure guy. Like in all all the scenes with his girlfriend, he's constantly like agitated and you know shifting in his seat and trying to explain himself to her. Right. The scene with him in the adoption center when he's like mm-hmm. talking about the kids being constrained by by all the walls and he's comparing it to like his experience in prison. And like, right. Or I, I mean, the diner scene we got is one of the best scenes we've covered. Mm-hmm. I mean, I keep on saying that, but it's also kind of true. <laughs> the diner scene rules. I there there's so, uh, an unraveling of his uh, intimacy a little bit there. He's trying to slowly tell her, like, this is who I am, and I can put everything I want in life on this little picture, you know. Yeah, and he's he's so vulnerable always, you know, and like so he's vulnerable but guarded at the same time. Like he has the like the leather jackets and the silk shirts. Like I love when he's talking about that in, in the car where he's like, who do you think I am? I do this, this, and this. And mm. he's kind of directly telling her like, this is all a sham. Like I do all of these things to try and, 
to, to try and establish who I am, you know? Right. Um, but I think what's kind of left unstated there, and I think, I mean, a, a lot of things in this movie are kind of left unstated and unspoken, but all of that, like, Frank almost doesn't need to directly spell it out because he's kind mm. of wearing his heart on his sleeve. True. Um, but what, what I want to say specifically about, like, the unstated and unassumed, though, is if you have these movies where it's like, yeah, here's this cool criminal guy who's good at what he does. Mm. You know, the, that archetype where it's like, you know, he's wounded. And David Fincher just released The complex. Killer, you know? Yeah. His, his The Killer, <laughs> as opposed to John I mean, I, The Killer. I haven't seen that. No, but I know it's, it's on. I, the, I don't know. It's if on really my. Falls into it, that's unfortunately. We'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, but I'm just saying, you no, know, well, it's the same thing for sure of like, there's a guy who's really good at being a killer and he's, but he's, you know, he's got something going on behind his eyes. Well, the, yeah. I, I think what I'm, what I'm saying though, is that the way that they're presented mm. always feels like, they, because like, the, the thinking about Thief is they never talk, they use like, underworld kind of slang, or they, they always, they don't need to like, feel the need to spell things out to the audience you know they never they don't have a big short adam mckay style voiceover <laughs> where it's like sure there's this thing called uh the the case and that's where you look scope out the joint for no. you this this and this it it's a it's lot of technical of, talk in this movie for yeah that, that is never explained is, that like doesn't feel the need to explain itself and i think that's a big part of the appeal of these movies because it lets dumb guys like me feel smart yeah. By by letting you just watch these guys in their element mm. and let you live that fantasy of being someone who is perfectly competent in this kind of underworld mm. by just not explaining things to you and letting them play out in front of you. But also um, making the terms simple enough that you're like, oh, you know, when he's like, oh, yeah, we're who's our man you're like oh i know what they're talking yeah. about even though they're it's like, a fine line you know right? because if you is. do it too much people feel like they're being talked down to but keeping that level of mystery and leaving just enough things unsaid so it feels like yeah you, like you said someone a general uh, audience member Sean, can follow along with it you gotta see train splooshing because train splooshing also has the same uh uh gimmick it, it, it's almost it's not quite but it is almost uh like clockwork orange level like they're using slang that you've never heard of but you maybe get a little for the most part what they're saying Problem after they say it like already, i've heard times. a lot of that i oh, already sure. know before seeing it but i've heard a lot of that uh, we'll get to it I, yeah. I mean it's as of now it is definitively on the list oh for sure i i have I, I'm sorry, really quickly. I also have yeah. realized I, we have like only a, you know, I, I was double checking my list. There's only like a hundred ish movies that I've seen left in the collection. So we should, you know, be, be trying to wander away from those, <laughs> but we'll do train spotting when it comes out uh, in January or so, uh, maybe February, but uh, you know, we should try to try to watch a little less of what I've already seen, you know, what you've already seen. Or or you? I mean, or you me. wa we watch I mean, a lot of things that you've seen before. Thief being uh, one, Thief and Shallow Grave are both movies I've seen this week. Uh, and next week we're going to watch uh, no spoilers, but the two movies that we happen to be watching in sequence are also movies that I've seen before. So we'll, wow. it'll be interesting. Fucking lucky you. 
I want to acknowledge one more big thing about Thief. Do you remember when the the big boss man, I forget his name, but he's talking to Frank for the first time on the docks and he says, Mm. I'll be your father, as if to say, like, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your patron. Mm. That that line, I immediately noted it um, without remembering how everything transpired. But he he reminds me, I mean, I'm watching. Okay, well, I'm going to bring this a little bit far out, and then I'm going to bring it close, but that's the way I talk, as always. I'm watching Shameless, and Shameless has a scene where uh, it has this this character who uh, pretends to be gay to get benefits from it. And uh, there's a... Murphy. There's... <laughs> And there's a moment in uh, where they introduce two ver they introduce these two people who are both like I'm gonna offer you a bunch of money to speak up about gay rights and one of them is the guy who's like I actually want to talk about gay rights and I want you to be like a voice for us and we will offer you a lot of money and when he's introduced he's literally haloed there's like a big glow of light around him and as he talk you and he's got this white streak of hair and as he talks uh he you're like oh this is like he's he's because this guy the the main character frank he's he's in a bad place it's like oh this guy has like come to forgive his sins and and you know take care of him or whatever like in a father-like way then when the other guy shows up and the other guy's like we hate you know gay people and we want you to go to gay conversion and you know we want to prove that we can quote fix any gay person and so whatever he's got this like reddish hair he is underlit exactly in the same way that this guy is in this scene he is uh, talking in this kind of voice and he constantly is mentioning adam and eve in a way that uh sounds like he was in the garden of eden <laughs> like they, where he's like oh yeah like adam and eve you know, and i'm like were were you there you know them personally um and uh, you know he's the devil he's he's like satanic or whatever it's very subtle characterization and in here it happens the same way he shows up and he's like i'll be your father i'll take care of you but also he's underlit he's got this darkness to him it's like he's got a whole mask uh, uh, on his face or whatever and i think that this character is to a certain extent like the the deal that he's making with the devil you know he or or demonic forces or whatever yeah but not only not only demonic though it's because the devil isn't he's not like a patriarch you know but the the status of this guy oh i should really learn this character's name i try to learn character names you know i do but i and i and i don't i pointedly i tend to be like yeah yeah the well the problem is that you typically know the actor name and i don't even know that that's true i have a signature from james conn so that's pretty fun yeah i do too he autographed my my tits Um, (laughs) he autographed my fucking d cups Sorry, my I bad. can't whistle it. Do, do the whistle. <laughs> you won't have to because it's right there. It just happened, and it's gonna happen in three, two. No, one. stop! No, 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 no! It's not happening. It's not happening. One. No. Okay. Now it's there. Now it's there. There it is. There it is. Right. There it cool, is. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, but he's he's this guy who at once is like I I think on some level Frank is someone who is in need of a father figure, but also ends up lashing out against him you know it's uh, on some level like frank's father frank frank's life has been a series of dysfunctional or absent or corrupt father figures and you know we don't know too much about his family life i think but 
I think on some level, like him being in prison, and I think he he was in prison what at like age twenty one, mm-hmm. like very very young, um, and obviously kind of lacking direction in his life or support from his family. That the state slash the prison kind of becomes his father figure slash the absence of it. So he kind of grows to to resent that idea of structure and security and being lorded over Mm -hmm. and that's that's i think why he ends up lashing out uh against his benefactor um i mean obviously the benefactor in quotes was always going to betray him but that's just kind of the story of frank's life you know um and that kind of anxiety and yeah vulnerability like we've been talking about is is really the the core thing with this character in a way that's kind of inevitable when you watch it like it's very hard i think to see him as just like a cool guy um i i mean it's not but it is no well this is because he's so he's so fucked up and he's so vulnerable and also he's interesting and it is like ghost dog he is the master of his environment it the 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 music the tangerine dream score the the beautiful lights everything breaks which is i mean that's going on the all-timer list Uh, i also use the thief score uh weekly in my D game it is one of the mainstays uh because mm. i love it and it's perfect for like sort of synthy fantasy vibes but regardless um i think that uh I, you're, you're right he, the, the filmmaking itself bends around him especially in that last scene that last scene when he wins is when you get slow motion you get to see him in his most confident walking away with like the leather jacket and everything i think that although there is tension to that scene he is basically like a Western hero at that point, And he becomes that. And uh, the film, and so, you know, the, the, the thought of him is cool. that he lives. Sure. Yes. Because that's the worst because outcome for he, I mean, the whole, like him talking about like, Oh, the skulls, you know, when you're in the joint, you can't really die. You know, I want to mm-hmm. die out here like a good death or whatever. Like I was like, all right, well, Sean, <laughs> this is the Sean uh, philosophy that we're really digging into. Yeah, but uh, it's not—it's not a huge part of his character. It's mentioned, of course, right. and that whole scene is is incredibly important to his character. But part of what makes it work so well is that it's mentioned in passing. Right, and I think that uh, there's something to that. I think there's a lot that uh, I, I, th- I think that there, that it adds a lot to his character, but also there he's cool he's cool for surviving at the end and being cool i think that the filmmaking supports that a little bit i think that's why we think of thief as like cool also because michael mann you know his filmmaking is very cool i wish michael mann would make look i get that he's good at like digital and stuff i i have collect i got to add thief to my uh you know, my f- movie shelf behind me of a bunch of auteur filmmakers, because uh, I finally have two movies by Michael Mann along with Collateral, which is maybe the most digitally shot movie of all time. Very grimy, very disgusting and everything. Uh, but I kind of wish Michael Mann would go back to making films on film because uh, these are really good. It looks really cool. It feels very shot on film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, in sense of like you're talking about the griminess and the way that the light filters through the lens, like the way that it it feels like a physical object. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the big like jalo blood, like the like bright fluorescent blood yes. splatters that feel like Lucio Fulci adjacent. That 
that is something that only happens in movies that were shot on film. That tone of blood has not been used in anything made after 2010. Right, right. And it's it's funny because you think about man as like sleek and kind of gritty and realistic and right. I I know I'm making a and lot about is... like the color of the blood, but, no, but it you're just right. reminded it, me so much of like Italian filmmaking. Yeah, sorry. No, you're totally right. It is exactly that. Uh if if people use it again, it's in something like I don't know. What's that? Uh, the the slasher movie that's like Final Girl or whatever. Like a, a bunch of these. Like, uh, we're making fun of the stereotype of like horror movies or whatever. Like we're we're post post modern. We're like meta about it or whatever kind of movies. But otherwise, you're right. The blood is too blood's too realistic. We need more of this like unrealistic, silly, you know, house uh, co- colored blood. Uh, I think I'm ready to leave it there. You got any concluding thoughts on Thief or you want to wrap it up? Uh, just, I, I am going to be finishing off. I, I've watched a lot of Michael Mann. I have watched, I think I have watched exactly half of his career. Uh, this is, I mean, we've talked a lot about how I love the podcast Blank Check. Blank Check has covered both Danny Boyle and Michael Mann. And so for that reason, I have watched all of Danny Boyle's movies and I am almost done with michael mann um and i just generally looking through michael mann's career i just think that this is such a it, it is telling it, he, he he very much makes this a mission statement he very much sets this guy up and creates a mood and a whole uh aesthetic that i think carries through and the viewpoint on his characters is also especially strong here where he uh will continue in collateral in uh miami vice and in heat uh to create these characters that kind of vaguely want to be normal but just can't or just see that the world just isn't that way for them and uh I don't know. He's a, he's a great filmmaker. I, w- I, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only one of his movies in the collection, uh, but I wish that we were able to uh, cover more of his stuff. Yeah. I, you know what, given how much time we have left to go, there's still a very good chance that one of what, at least one more of his sneaks in uh, before we're, we're done with this project. So right. never say never. Totally agree. Uh, let's get into the rankings because this is uh this was a heavy week. I mean, heavy yeah. in terms of good, good movies yes, mostly. You know, uh, I, I actually I'll I'll start us off, uh, being a little negative here. We have one hundred and thirty seven uh spines to cut that that have been covered so far, more more or less, give or take. Whether you count uh fishing with John and it's a whatever, it's one hundred thirty seven movies. So my pick for number. 122 is Les Millions, uh, right below And the Ship Sails On, right above Summertime. You know, there's some good stuff here, uh, mostly in the back half, and um, I don't want to discount it, but uh, it's not the best, and I, I doubt that I will really revisit this and think about it um, beyond the scope of this podcast, and I'm done thinking about it. No more. Uh, weirdly, coming in, it, it's coming in quite high, but not coming in as high as you'd think. The Magic Flute coming in at 64. I'm going to say stop saying coming in. Uh, That's not bad. 64 right below The Lure and right above Life of Brian. Uh, two musicals right there, The Lure and Magic Flute. Uh, I think that they're... 
and, and Life of Brian also is a musical. Dang, it's, I mean, it's got some, it's got a song in it. Uh, but it's um, the Magic Flute. Uh, it's it's really cool aesthetically. It's very cute, cool visually. I just uh, I didn't love it. It didn't engage me that much. It's not as confusing as the lore, but it has less going for it. I think, um, and I, that's where I put it right there. Um, now we get into some big boys. Let's talk Thief. Look, I know that it's really stereotypical to like love Thief, but like I love Thief. Number 29 is Thief, right above Peeping Tom, right below Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which are two, these two movies I very much think of as like, they are aesthetically stagnant, but they are so cool to look at. So I, I can't, you know, I give it props. Um, and Thief is, you know, it's a very silly, very simple, or it's a very simple story anyway. It's but, a very uh, silly movie. It's not a it's silly It's basically movie. quirky as hell. I just mean that it's very, very simple in a way that Fear and Loathing is also very simple. And so I really felt like it was appropriate to put it right here. Um, Shallow Grave, I flipped it. I pushed it around. I, at one point it was below Thief and uh, now it's not. I think Shallow Grave is really, really good. I think it's like a masterpiece. I'm putting it at number 14. It goes right. Mm. Think about Ingmar Bergman, it's going right above Seventh Seal. It's going right below Chunking Express. I think Shallow Grave rules. I think that you can show Shallow Grave to anyone and they'll have a good time. This is, I didn't get to state this during my time, but I think that Shallow Grave, if it was in a different language, would be more beloved. <laughs> if you made it. And, <laughs> I can I, see it. I can see like, it. There's a imagine, lot of things you could say that about, but that makes sense. Imagine French sha- Shallow Grave, where it's like, they're sitting there, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm being introduced to these three characters. And you're like, oh, wow, they're so weird. They're so wacky or whatever. And you're like, yeah, but it's because they're French. You know, like, you know, like you're kind of like, yeah, there's, of course, that like immediate disconnect of I'm watching a movie with subtitles. And because of that, you're like, yeah, I buy into it. I think this to would be, be fair, more beloved. Scottish people with that voice <laughs> barely human sure sure I mean, so you they're, and they're time lord as we've established they're yeah. all time lords of this movie right i don't even think christopher eccleston's scottish uh he's from the north i don't know anything else about that uh but yeah he is uh th- this movie is just so good and it's just a it's one of those movies that i can't imagine showing anyone and then being like I hate it uh, unless they're like, I don't like violence <laughs> or something like that. Uh, there's very little that you can say about it that isn't good. And I, uh, I love it. I'm just, I bought both shallow grave and thief this week for watching. And um, I'm, I, I'm really having a good what time. Else you I had a do great with time. A damn movie. <laughs> uh, whew, well, I could give you some suggestions, but we should save those for off mic. Play the whistle sound. <laughs> Go for it, Rank. Oh, shit. Sorry. I, I, for some reason, I, I thought that... Uh, uh, fuck. Fuck! Uh, Limitly on number 109. It's just above Low Little Flow. Mm. It just underneath Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, I didn't mind Limitly on. I liked it, as I have said, a little bit more than you did. Sure. You gave it a little you bit ranked it higher. Um, but ultimately, I, I won't disagree with you too much, other than to say... Uh, I didn't find the first half as grating as potentially you did, and I think that that sure. made the difference for giving me the patience to appreciate the second half all that more. Mm-hmm. Next up is Magic Flute. This is bizarre. Would you believe I have it ranked lower than you do? 
I really? have it at 71, which is a good spot. Like, that's not bad. It's just below Last Rock for Chivalry, just above Night to Remember. Hey, not bad. Mm-hmm, but not bad. I would have thought that, what do I have at 64? Chung King Express? Well, sure. <laughs> we, you know. Yeah, we know. We know. Speaking of movies that we know, I have Shallow Grave just a little bit above that at 59. Sure. I have it just above Hamlet and just below Flesh for Frankenstein, which are two movies that okay. you have been maybe a not li- confused by my appreciation for, but you know, we've bit. had our separate words. Mostly Hamlet. I'm really like, uh, you really liked Hamlet. And I was Hamlet like, it's was Hamlet, awesome. dude. It's so fucking tight. Like, yeah. You remember the sets, the gothic architecture? For the sure. Ghost? Like, come on. Hamlet was awesome. Yeah, I think that I may just be underrating Hamlet because I'm like, yeah, it's Hamlet. <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> of course. I think so. You know, I, think, I, you know I, I might be judging it too much as an adaptation. That, Have uh, it on mute, turn off the subtitles. See what I happens. promise you're going to like it a little bit more. Sure, sure. Thief is coming in at number 31 for me. Mm. I wouldn't say that it's one of my favorite, favorite movies, but... It's it's an incredible example of man's style. It's a great condensation of that. And like you said, you know, I love talking about Michael Mann and just being like, man, (laughs) it's really fun. But he's like the the, like talking about humanity broadly, like man's style is to do this, this and this, Mm -hmm. like the folly of man. Right, right. The The folly folly of of man man is to be such a such a freaking freaking douche nozzle on set oh yeah oh yeah i didn't know that i was talking to somebody who like recently i don't know if he worked on a michael mann set but had like worked with somebody who had worked on a michael mann set i did not know that michael mann was like infamously a jackass yeah he's uh not known for being nice (laughs) i'll say that i mean there's lots of stories but just we could boil it down to not maybe nice (laughs) much like his characters Mm-hmm. Um, but it is ranking just above Insomnia and just below Sweet Smell of Success, and that mm. just feels right. Doesn't it feel like kind of in between those movies? It does. I I mean, you're talking, because what you're talking about is you, it feels like, it happens a lot, and it, it happens in my list as well, but it happens a lot in your list, I think, where you have like a run of this kind of movie that you really like yeah. you know like an insomnia or a sweet smell of success you're like really entertaining lots of fun uh not not in my all-time favorites but i just can't deny it's you know it's got it moves this thing it's very pretty to look at it's cool you know like mm-hmm. that, that 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 you say a lot of the same things or whatever you well said it's that also you have that kind fun- of this this platonic sense of of coolness right mm. and also of masculinity Right, he's centered around these very damaged, bizarre, complex male characters. Um, Right, to me, that's that's more so. um, Not that what you're saying was wrong, but that is kind of the center point of of what I of what jumped out to me in this run of films. Right, I've been. I think I have been a little intentional about like trying to break up my versions of that like i had this run for a while that was the killer tokyo story and lay samurai and they kind of started to blend together in my head i just recently put autumn sonata in front of lay samurai just and i it's not because 
I don't think that that's where it belongs, but also because I was maybe gave it a little of an edge being like, well, it's gotta, we gotta break up this. <laughs> this is too ridiculous. There are all these movies about like, ah, uh, this guy who like walks around and is cool and shoots a gun or whatever. Wait, come on. Let's get, let's get some autumn sonatas in here. Oh yeah. We need to break it up a little bit. And um, let's, let's talk yeah. about next week. Cause speaking of breaking it up a little bit, we got a very unconventional next week. Uh, because we're talking about the ladies. I'm kidding. Let's yes. cut that out. Let's not. Let's not do that. Uh, we're talking let's about. Let's instead put in seven. <laughs> no, no, no. Exactly. Uh, 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 seven. Yeah. No so seven, we're not. We're, we're talking about uh, Agnes Varda's movies, Cleo from five to seven, and Vagabond. Have you seen either of these movies, Sean? No, I haven't seen a single Agnes. Varda. Awesome. Uh, I've seen both of them, and I am. I saw Vagabond uh, in school, like on a afternoon, and kind of was like, "All right, well, I feel like I really ate my vegetables there, or whatever." <laughs> but Cleo from Five to Seven, it has grown for me at, into a movie that I'm so excited to revisit, and hopefully, Crown is one of my favorite movies. We'll see, we'll see. I'm really excited to to check her out as a filmmaker, and we've got uh, plenty. We have got a couple more Varda movies to go, but instead of going with like just finishing off Varda, which would be kind of you know lame or whatever we're gonna have a movie week that's gonna be concentrated on female protagonists uh we really uh skimp on those a little bit too much and so my pick for next week is uh valerie and her week of wonders check new wave really hyped to uh check it out because uh i'm 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 interested in czechoslovakian new wave movies and uh you know uh Agnes Varda, she's a French New Wave filmmaker, so, you know, it all works out. Valerie and her Week of Wonders... It's all part of the same New Wave. Right, right. Valerie and her Week of Wonders looks, uh, you know, looks a little bizarre, looks like a lot of the kind of movies that we like covering on this podcast, and so uh, I'm here for it. Let's check it out. Yeah, a little bit bizarre, a little bit psychedelic, a little bit mm-hmm. of magical realism, a little bit about what it means to be a girl. So I thought I would go with something very much in the same vein, uh, Celine and Julie go boating. This mm. looks like a lot of fun. It's just ladies having a girls' night, doing magic spells, going into alternate universes. It's kind of like what my life looks like. Kind of, this will be a really good insight into um, if I was two women and having fun instead oh, of goodness. just instead of just like you know whatever I do. But everything else, you know, the magic stuff, the crazy shit, that's all going to be pretty much the same. Being directed by a French guy, that's all pretty much going to be the same. It, I'm looking at the Criterion cover now. It reminds me a lot of Daisies, which is a movie that we're definitely going to cover soon. Another yes. Czech New Wave film. And uh, yeah, this is this is going to be great. I'm really I'm really hyped. Let's let's we're going to have a good week next week. I I cannot imagine uh this going horribly wrong so let's cut to me next week like like screaming and everything yeah Uh, oh you're gonna be screaming and with that threat uh thank you all for listening please remember to rate review and subscribe uh tune in next week to hear us talk about those titles uh doing a little bit of a girls week uh Please uh, check us out on anthonyreviews.com. This is the Anthony Reviews podcast. Check us out on the sites formerly known as Twitter. Uh, we might get off that soon, by which I mean me, because the Twitter that's right now linked. I, I, Twitter kind of sucks, guys. I didn't know if you know this, but in general, not good for the soul. Uh, I and like so I might be quitting it soon. Ads, though. 
<laughs> yeah, my favorite thing is the a- the the advertisements for like AI generated images that are clearly uh, false. Um, and you can, they're like, here is your AI girlfriend. She will talk to you. Yes. And I don't. Uh, I don't like that you've targeted me as someone who needs that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, so tune in for that. The, uh, that for those stuff next week. Please check us out on Instagram as well because that is the one that I'm going to be keeping around. And uh, oh, uh, this episode was also edited by Tyler Fraser, who uh, th- did a lot of heavy lifting this week. So we really got to credit him. Thank you so much, Tyler. And he's just listening to this completely hollowed out. Um, <laughs> actually, I, I like think, fl- and as I, always, I think that we kind of have a message from him about to come right now. Uh, Tyler, do you have something to say? Guys, please send help. They've trapped me in this basement, and they keep making me play this stupid flute sound. I, I, I don't know how much longer they're, they're going to keep me down here. They keep making me edit all these episodes like crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those suggestions are good. And then and then he'll play 100 of the flute. 100 of the sound bite of the flute just to take us out. They'll say like, oh no, I hear them coming down the hallway. I better be quiet. And it's, <laughs> it's the flute sound getting, getting steadily louder. louder. Yep, that sounds great. Anyway. Put this all in at the end. Yeah. Tyler, uh, pipe in the noise that the little lick on the flute that Papa Gino does sometimes. Yeah. He's like, Hree! like yeah. that. You Scatter that throughout this. Yeah. Throughout the entire episode. Um, <laughs> even a few times before we even mention this. If you can. If it, should it please you. <laughs> yep. And a little magic flute sound. Fuck. Tyler, if you don't fucking do that, I'm gonna kill you. I'm not if gonna you don't, and we're just saying this whole episode, put Making this stuff up like end. a bunch of fucking dipshits <laughs> instead of smart as hell geniuses. <laughs> <laughs>